All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith on a day when we've got a busy Monday show for you. We are living through the dark times here with this COVID-19 pandemic. The times got even darker on the weekend with the worst ever mass shooting in Canadian history. We will have the latest on the deadly Nova Scotia rampage on the show today. The investigation, the virtual grieving process. Imagine losing a loved one, a friend, the brave police officer killed in this shooting. You cannot comfort someone with a hug or with an embrace with the social distancing measures in place across the country at this time. So the dark times get darker as we move ahead. All the latest on the show today. We got lots more on the program as well. We're going to talk about the economic devastation of the COVID-19 pandemic on the show today. If you heard some of the recent briefings from Dr. Bonnie Henry, the provincial health officer, um, we the uh, the lack of the PNE t- uh, this summer, some of the other big events that are likely to be shut down as well. We'll have the latest on that. One of the other things that Dr. Bonnie Henry mentioned the other day was the possibility of travel uh, being suspended for up to 18 months. That's going to cause a devastating blow to the Metro Vancouver economy as well. We'll talk about that on the show today. The potential for large-scale layoffs in the transit sector as well. TransLink talking about possible layoffs here. We'll bring you the latest on that. We'll talk about the outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic in the Mission Prison on the show today. And of course, as always, lots of opportunities for uh, to have for you to call in on the on the open line as well. But first, let's talk about the PNE this summer, which looks like it will not go ahead. Have a listen to this. This is Dr. Bonnie Henry when she was okay. Let's go to my guest now, Jason Faria. He is the owner of Next Gen Concessions. He runs food stands at the PNE and other fairs and midways all facing cancellation this summer. Jason, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. Jason, tell me about your, your business there. I know you run a lot of the uh, the iconic food stands down there at the PE. Yeah, so we've been down at the PE. Uh, we're a multi-generational family. We've been there since 1957. So a lot of the traditional fair foods, footlong hot dogs, corn dogs, cotton candy, caramel apples, we've, we own them, we've had them there uh, for a very long time. Yeah, I think for a lot of people who've gone to the PNE, which is probably most people listening, they've at some point or another they've probably eaten some of your food uh, down there because you run some of the uh, the iconic food stands. Your dad used to run this business too, right? Yeah. So our our, our company Next Gen Concession is a play on that. So we're the next yeah. generation. Uh, my stepdad was a very polarizing and influential figure on the, on that site. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Tell tell me a little bit about him. Why was he a polarizing figure? Well, there, you know, obviously our industry in the world has changed a lot over the past 60 years. Um, I don't know if you would ever see anyone smoking a cigarette and serving hot dogs at the same time while <laughs> yeah. wearing a white Stetson cowboy hat. Okay. All right. People, I'm sure people will remember your dad. He was, he was a fixture down there in the midway for sure, Jason. Let me ask yep. you about um, your reaction to the comment from Dr. Henry on Saturday that the PNE is likely not to go forward is that the first you heard that the PE would probably be shut down this summer 
yeah, we were definitely taken aback by those comments because obviously, like everyone else, we're kind of living in, uh, in, in limbo right now in a place of uncertainty. And it, it, it feels like maybe that uh, wasn't a premeditated response. And uh, I, I don't know if the impact of those words uh, really, you know, were really thought of beforehand because of the impact that it's, it's created and, you know, the, the shockwaves it sent through not just the PE, but our, our industry as a whole. Yeah, you you run food stands at other events, right? Like, the, is it the Cloverdale Radio? You also work there. Yeah, so Next Gen Concessions uh, operates at the Calgary Stampede and Cloverdale Rodeo, and then we right. also own the Greater Vancouver Food Truck Festival as well. Wow, wow. Okay, so have these all been shut down as well? Is the rodeo shut down? Is is the Calgary Stampede shut down as well? Uh, the rodeo made their announcement late last week about yeah. the cancellation postponement until next year. Um, as with the Calgary Stampede, there has been nothing yet in place. You know, obviously, all these organizations are just monitoring the situation and and trying to plan for maybe alternatives or a different way to operate these events. You know, maybe yeah. these events aren't going to be the way they were this year, but maybe there is a way to, you know, change and adapt. Jason, how many people you got working for you? We employ roughly about 120 young workers every year. So that's 120 people be looking for work, it sounds like. And that's just us. Yeah. Yeah. What, what are you hearing from some of the other people down at the PNE there? What kind of what kind of devastation is this causing for businesses? Well, we'll say that my phone has blown up over the last couple of days. Um, yeah, I mean, this is a lot of people's livelihoods. You know, we're, we're a seasonal operation and we're lucky enough to be one of the ones that operate from May till September. Some of these are operating for two, three months a year and doing planning and development for the rest of the year. You know, we're, we're staring down the barrel of an 18-month layoff for our industry as a whole if we don't get any summer fairs or events this year, which would cripple and, and devastate not just myself, but hundreds of other businesses and thousands of other individuals. Talking to Jason Ferry, uh, he runs a lot of the concession stands uh, down in the PNE Midway. Just pulled up some audio here, Jason, of Dr. Bonnie Henry. Here is the news that you didn't want to hear here on, on Saturday. Here's Dr. Henry. So I think we can think about um, how we can celebrate important milestones, important things in our lives in a way that allows us to have a safe distance. And I think we should start be planning that now. So things like the P&E are not likely to happen this year. You know, this is, this is a challenging time around our world, and it's not going to be easy for us to get out of it, but we should, um, those types of large mass gatherings where we have lots of people together, uh, this is not the time for that, and it's not going to be through this summer. Okay, she said there the PNE is not likely to happen, but I, I don't think there's much hope at all that the fair will go forward, at least in, in, the, in the old way that used to happen this summer, Jason, and you guys were mentioning that this was sort of a shock and a body blow for you guys, but you must have been—you must have been preparing for something like this, right? I mean, this was obviously kind of an, you know, a possibility here that the PNE would be shut down this year. Yeah, I mean, we, we obviously, you know, had to look inward at ourselves and, and, and kind of say, hey, this this is possibly going to happen. Yeah. But we have a lot of faith in our industry and the people within it, and you know, our ability to be creative and, and, and adapt. And, you know, speaking with people at the P&E and people that have been influenced by it, you know, one of the big major things going around is, you know, they, they've survived a, a Great Depression and two world wars. You know, yeah. this, is, this is, you know, in the face of adversity comes the time for change and, you know, maybe something better comes out of all of this. And, you know, rather than slamming the door shut, 
you know, I, I hope that the stakeholders in place are given the opportunity to present a case for, for change and say, hey, you know, let's do this a better way and let's celebrate something this year rather than just dwell on all the negatives outside of our front doors. Jason, thank you for coming on. I hope your business manages to survive through this shutdown. Appreciate it. I appreciate it, Mike. Thanks. All right. Welcome back, Mike Smith, as we continue talking about the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic and taking a look at the shutdowns, the social distancing restrictions that uh, remain in place. And this really starting to hit home for a lot of people, especially when their livelihoods uh, depend on it. You heard my interview there with uh, Jason Faria, whose family has been a fixture down in the PNE Midway uh, since the 1950s. And this is a family run business. They run some of the iconic food stands down there, facing an extremely bleak summer with the PNE probably shut down. Uh, the Calgary Stampede, that's probably not going to go ahead, although it's not official yet. The Cloverdale Rodeo, that is officially canceled. So a lot of these events being shut down as we face a bummer of the summer and a lot of impact, uh, negative impact being felt by the businesses that rely on a lot of these big events that that we see in the summer. One of the other things that uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry said the other day was the potential for travel restrictions to remain in place, especially international travel, for maybe 12 to 18 months. And I'll tell you what, man, that's like blindsiding a lot of businesses too that we're hoping that maybe we would be on this thing by then. But we're going to talk about some of these COVID-19 restrictions now and when they might be able to be relaxed. My guest is Dr. Brian Conway. He is the president and medical director of the Vancouver Infectious Diseases Center. Dr. Conway, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Hey, tell me a little bit about your work down there at the Infectious Disease Centers. What, what kind of work are you guys doing during this pandemic here? Well, we're trying to make sure that the inner city is taken care of. Our work is the development and evaluation of systems of care for the inner city with addiction, HIV, and hepatitis C. They've been affected socially by the COVID virus. They've been robbed of many of the social structures on which uh, they depended. They do not have as easy, easy access to addiction care as they did, and they were poorly housed, and they're potentially even worse housed right now. So we need to make sure that they stay well, that they stay safe, and that they survive this COVID pandemic. Okay, I really appreciate the work all you people on the front lines are are doing in this fight. Let's have a little listen to this. This is Dr. Bonnie Henry from her news conference uh, recently talking about getting BC moving again and we get beyond this pandemic. That is our dilemma. And what we need to focus on for the coming weeks and months is just the right amount of restriction so that we don't end up having those explosive growth so we don't end up overwhelming our healthcare system and our critical care um, system. And we are still able to start moving to get uh, our healthcare system moving again and to get our society moving again. Okay, this is what a lot of people want. They, they want to get moving again, but obviously safety has to come first. And what is your understanding, Dr. Conway, of, of, how, of how we might be able to start relaxing Uh, some of the restrictions that are in place? Well, two things have to be in place. Although we've done very well in terms of the number of cases that are diagnosed on a daily basis in British Columbia, we have to do a little bit better. Ten or so new cases a year, two per million, is a target that would need to be maintained for about two weeks before we can 
start relaxing some of the restrictions. In addition, there will still be cases after the restrictions are relaxed, even if it's just a slight relaxation. So we have to be able to find the cases, diagnose them, make sure it's COVID-19, find out who they may have spread COVID-19 to, and isolate those people so that we limit the impact of the new cases. If we do those two things, and there's every hope that we will be able to do it within the next four to six weeks, we will be able to start relaxing the restrictions. Okay, so in the next four to six weeks, you, you think it's possible if, if we all adhere to the social distancing rules that are in place now, within four to six weeks, we could be down to maybe a sustained new caseload of uh, 10 or under, 10 cases a day or under? It's certainly possible. We've done so well. Uh, Dr. Henry presented some information of some Google mapping of tracing individuals and seeing how they were uh, perhaps avoiding going to parks and other crowded areas. And we did a fantastic job. We need to keep doing this, keep two hockey sticks or two meters away from each other. And that, I think, is the key to continuing to reduce the disease load in British Columbia. Okay, if we get to that point where we're able to just start to start relaxing some of these restrictions what do you think are the maybe some of the first restrictions that could be scaled back a bit i think we would open up the workplaces in a way that personal distance can be maintained potentially start opening the schools on a part-time or staggered basis and some of the small businesses that have suffered so much with the covid restrictions then we would watch for several weeks and make sure that the number of cases doesn't go up significantly. If it doesn't, fine, then we'll think of other things that could be relaxed. And if it does go up, we'll examine the situation very carefully, figure out what we did wrong, and maybe do it better. And I think we're going to go through these types of cycles for several months, likely into the fall. Yeah, there's a lot of people mourning today as we talked off the top of the show about big events like the PNE probably not going forward this year, the Celebration of Light, the Vancouver Pride Parade, a, a lot of these events that have become kind of iconic in the city, very likely not to go forward this summer. Is that, is that your feeling on it as well, that people can just forget about these big, these big events this summer? I think we should uh, forget about big events, but try to think about smaller events and how we can make those work to our advantage. I think we'll be probably having house parties as the second part of uh, the, the relaxation of the restrictions, maybe slightly larger gatherings of 50 or so as long as it's outdoors and well-spaced. These are the kinds of things that are realistic to at least think about over the summer. And I think people need hope right now. People are getting cabin fever. They're restricted. Most of what they want to do, they can't do. So to start thinking of, well, if they allow us to go outdoors and have 25 or 50 people together, how much bang for our buck can we get and start thinking about that? I think that's where the hope's going to come from in the short term. Uh, Dr. Conway, we've just got one minute left. You mentioned some of the work you do in the uh, downtown and working with uh, some very vulnerable groups of people. What, what, is the, what is the situation you're understanding in the downtown east side? Are we, are we, are we, a lot of people still well, under threat there. Were 34 there. Deaths. there were 34 overdose deaths in the first 11 weeks of the year. In the subsequent two weeks, beginning March 23rd, there were 16 deaths, an increase of almost 300% in the rate of death. These individuals are being disenfranchised. They're being disengaged. They opened two housing uh, facilities, urgent, uh, uh, urgent uh, housing for this community uh, at the Cool Harbor uh, and at the Roundhouse. 
Uh, there's now a 200-person wait list to get wow. into these facilities. We need to do better. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Look, if we have a half a billion dollar hit with no help from the federal and provincial governments, and it doesn't look like anything's coming, all options are going to be on the table here. It's not like a choice for us is that we cannot run deficits uh, right by law. And yeah. um, I, the last thing, and of course, what I said in many interviews is why we need help is because we absolutely cannot lay off first responders in the middle of, of this pandemic. Hey, that's Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart speaking on the show last week as he pleaded for help for his city. He had been looking for a $200 million injection of capital from the provincial government. That did not happen last week. He did not get his $200 million, although the B.C. government has announced some measures to help struggling municipalities. Let's check in with one of the other mayors in the region now. Brad West, who is the mayor of Port Coquitlam, has been speaking out on this issue. Mayor West, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, let's talk about some of the measures that the province has brought in to help municipalities. Kennedy Stewart did not get his his $200 million bailout, but municipalities are getting help, right? What is the province doing? Right, so the province removed some restrictions and allowed some flexibility with respect to cities' capital reserves. And basically what they've allowed you to do is to borrow uh, from capital reserves to be able to meet your operating costs, um, which is an ability that existed in a more restricted way, uh, but they've created some flexibility and also removed the requirement uh, to pay interest back into those reserves. And so, you know, the reason why this is important is because there are actually in excess of $6 billion dollars in capital reserves that municipalities are holding throughout the province. And so obviously a significant amount of money, yes, has been earmarked for other things, but we're going through something that we've never had to deal with before. And there's a whole bunch of norms that are being broken. There's a whole bunch of rules that are being changed. Uh, and, you know, certainly from the provincial and federal perspective, you know, they have lots of lots of people who are coming to them looking for assistance. And so I think they've made the right decision here in saying to municipalities, you know, we're going to allow you to access that money that you already have. Okay, do you think it's going to be enough, though? Because, you know, the the mayor of Vancouver saying that he needed $200 million basically to stay afloat. And I was wondering why the provincial government did not expand that property tax deferral program. Right now, it's available to people if they're 55 years old or older. You can defer your property taxes, pay them later. And the provincial government would effectively pay your property taxes for you. So that would be a lot of money that municipalities could count on. Why not just expand that to everybody so everybody could could defer their property taxes? Wouldn't that help a lot? Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I, I would have it uh, be designed for people who've suffered through uh, a loss of income uh, because of COVID-19 yeah. okay. uh, and provide that uh, program for those people to be able to uh, make the property tax payment uh, the same as you say happens right now with uh, seniors who are able to access that program. And so I think that that does make a lot of sense. Uh, but really, this is about managing cash flow for municipalities. And the challenge that some folks get into is if you become very dependent on non-stable sources of revenue, and then all of a sudden they disappear, then you've got the hole. So in Porco Quitlam, we, you know, I've had reporters ask me, well, how, how have you been able to weather this storm the way you are? How are you able to reduce the property tax increase to zero and do the property tax deferment? 
Well, part of the answer is we've never been dependent on these unstable sources of revenue. So we don't charge for parking. There's no uh, pay parking in Port Coquitlam. So we don't get money from that anyway. So if you lose that because cities aren't charging for parking right now, aren't collecting parking revenue, you know, that creates a, a big hit. Okay. It, it doesn't for us because we're not dependent on that revenue to begin with. Okay. When I was talking to Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart the other day, I actually mentioned your municipality and what you guys are doing there in Port Coquitlam. And he had a response to that. And I just want to play that right on Tim, number three on your rundown there. Here's Kennedy Stewart uh, talking about uh, your municipality there, Mayor West in Poco. Poco property tax cut cost that city $300,000. If we did the same tax cut, it would cost us $60 million. Cities are different. Vancouver is different than other municipalities. And, and we all know this, you know. I don't see a downtown east side in Poco, right? I don't see parades, pride parades, all these kind of things, fireworks, all the main things that you have in the core city. I don't see this in surrounding municipalities. But the thing I do see here is the engine of our provincial economy, and I'm telling you, you know, if transit's in trouble, if we yeah. can't get our building permits approved and our licenses approved, those types of things, we're not going to have much of an economic recovery. Okay, taking a little crack there at you, I thought, <laughs> saying like, hey, come on, this, okay, you froze property taxes there in Poco, it cost you $300,000 to your budget, big whoop. You don't have a downtown east side down in Poco like he's got to deal with. What do you say to him? Well, let me break some news and, and let you know that we do have pari- parades and fireworks in Poco, just so okay. get that on the okay. record. We do have that. Very popular May Day parade and very popular Canada Day fireworks. Oh, um, and they're all cancelled? <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. they've all had to been cancelled because right. of this. But, um, you know, look, yes, every city is different. And, you know, I have never suggested otherwise. Uh, and there are going to be different uh, circumstances uh, that different cities find themselves in. Uh, the reason why it costs so little to the city's budget to reduce our property tax increase to zero, we ca- because it was so little to begin with. So, uh, you know, to me, you're, you're you're taking a crack at someone because they've done some hard work to get the property taxes to be uh, very reasonable to begin with. Uh, we put a lot of hard work, made a lot of responsible decisions. Uh, to get it to the level of where it was. And so, yes, it was easy to go to zero because we've already done a lot of the hard work. And we went to zero because we had the financial uh, ability in the city to do so, and we wanted to pass on that savings to our residents. So, uh, you know, I don't want to get into a tit-for-tat at all. Uh, The point is, of course, yes, every municipality is different, and and they're going to be in different circumstances, uh, but they're all... There, there are all things that we should be doing, uh, and those involve making sure we're managing our city responsibly, making right. sure that we're making uh, responsible decisions, and getting our financial house in order. Because, look, if you go to the province uh, or the federal government uh, and say, we need funds, we need money, um, you know, it, it's coming from the same taxpayer. Whether money comes from the municipal level, the provincial level, or the federal level, right. it all ultimately is coming from the taxpayer. Okay, let me ask you about, speaking to Port Coquitlam Mayor Brad West, you've been very outspoken about um, the influence of China in our politics in Canada in the past. People will recall how you campaigned, for example, to get the Union of BC Municipalities to stop accepting money uh, mm-hmm. from uh, the People's Republic of China. The, the role of China 
in this pandemic has now become a, a key issue. And whether China was honest about the outbreak of this virus at the beginning, if we can trust the information that China is sharing with the World Health Organization and the rest of the globe. I want to get your take on that and where we're, where we're at here with, with China. And I'll, I'll play this clip for you. Here is This is the federal health minister here, Patty Haidu, and she's talking about the data that comes from China. And here's what she said. There's no indication that the data that came out of China uh, in terms of their infection rate and their death rate uh, was falsified in any way. In fact, uh, if you look at the death rate uh, overall in China, it's much higher than the one we're seeing now. Okay, so there's no indication that uh, China falsified their data. She was also asked about whether we should be relying on uh, information from China, if China has been suppressing or falsifying information. And she had a, a pushback to a reporter who asked her that question. Here she is again. I would say that your question is feeding into the conspiracy theories that many people have been perpetuating on the on the internet. And it's important to remember that there is no way to beat a global pandemic if we're actually not willing to work together as a globe. Brad West, your thoughts? Well, there's a couple of things. First, uh, she's incorrect in terms of uh, China's reporting. They actually just admitted, uh, and Forbes and other media outlets reported this uh, three days ago, that they have... Uh, increased the death toll out of Wuhan, and it was 50, it is now 50% higher than originally reported. Um, look, I, I think throwing out these comments about how we need to cooperate um, and you know using that as a shield against any sort of criticism is inappropriate. Of course, everyone believes that we need to cooperate globally. That's the whole point. The whole point is that the government of China has been a unreliable partner in this. They have concealed information. They have falsified information. Don't forget that when a number of doctors, eight in fact, from the central hospital in Wuhan, came forward very early on before this was on people's radar and brought forward their concerns and tried to alert the media, tried to alert the public, and tried to alert their colleagues, what happened to them? They were arrested. One of them was disappeared, has never been seen from again. And so you can't tell me that a government with those types of actions is a reliable partner that we can depend on and just take as gospel whatever they say. I mean, that, that is just so ridiculous. And I think, uh, thankfully, uh, most of the, the world and, our, and our, most of our uh, elected leaders around the world uh, have been waking up to that. And we've seen uh, criticism of how the Chinese government has dealt with this right across the spectrum, whether it be the Democratic candidate, former Vice President Joe Biden, uh, President mm. Macron in France, uh, in the UK. Um, and unfortunately, one of the blind spots uh, has been in Canada. But that's unfortunately, from my perspective, nothing new. We have seen in this country, the government of China be very successful at expanding its influence uh, and has most of our elected officials basically, you know, in the corner, scared of their own shadow, unwilling to say anything that could be construed as uh, criticism towards uh, China's government. All right. Welcome back, Mike Smith. As we continue to talk about the COVID-19 pandemic with my guest, uh, Brad West, the mayor of Port Coquitlam, your calls to him, 604-280-9898 is the number to call, star 9898, toll free in your cell, Ken in Surrey. Hi. Yeah, good morning. One of the things that I find totally perplexing is that when this first happened, the Taiwanese, for some reason, managed to get wind of what was going on in China 
They didn't believe the Chinese government. They knew this thing was going to spread out of control. So consequently, they cut off any immigration from China about a week after they found out about it. On the other hand, the Chinese kept lying to people and saying, oh, no, this is not a problem. And of course, our prime minister said, no, everybody's welcome from China. We're not going to uh, take any aggressive moves. We wouldn't want to upset them at all. So in, in Taiwan, they have very little bit of a uh, very little tiny bit of COVID in, in infection in, in that country. And it's because they they knew what was happening somehow. And they stopped the immigration from China right away because they, they feared it would spread. We didn't do that. Brad West, your thoughts. Taiwan has certainly been the, the gold standard uh, with respect to response to COVID-19. And I think the caller is absolutely right. They've, they have the history under their belt of having dealing with the uh, Chinese Communist Party government. And they know that they're not to be trusted. And, you know, I don't know how many times we need to learn this lesson. It just seems like it's going to be over and over and over again. But a robust and decisive response, early action, was clearly key uh, to how Taiwan was able to come through this thus far uh, with a much better uh, low rate of infection than in other places. When I've been talking to infectious disease experts the last couple of weeks, and when the topic of China comes up, people will say, okay, you can certainly criticize China, but you know what? Uh, you got to look around the entire planet here for what's happening with this virus. You got to look to Italy. You got to look to Spain. You certainly have to look to the United States as, as we decide on our own next steps. And China's only one part of the puzzle. But, but do you think the critical piece is that China early on in the epidemic, um, when we had an opportunity to take action earlier, we deferred too much to China in the early days and we could have made a difference very early on? Absolutely. And I know yeah. that there was a, a study that was recently uh, completed in the UK uh, just the other day that talked about the fact that uh, China, for the first early part of this virus, uh, did try to conceal, did uh, misinform, uh, did in fact disappear doctors who were raising the alarm. Uh, did allow it to spread much further, much more quickly uh, than it otherwise would have. And so, I mean, I certainly concur. There are going to be lessons all over the place for us to learn. Uh, and, you know, I'm sure every country in the world is going to be understanding that there were things that they could have uh, done better. Okay. But let's there get, is let's... no getting around yeah. the fact that China's, their government's uh, early efforts to destroy information, to conceal what was going on, to falsify information, and to disappear I really want people to understand that. Imagine being one of the eight doctors working at the central hospital in Wuhan, raising your concerns, and the response of the government is to arrest you and for one of the doctors to have never been heard from again. That's what we're dealing with. Let's squeeze in one more call. Rob in New West. Hi. Yeah, morning, Mike. Uh, you know, uh, I think uh, really all the governments have really dropped the ball here because, you know, as an example, my father-in-law lives in Ontario, and every Boxing Day he goes to Taiwan, stays there till after Chinese New Year and comes home because uh, it's like an early spring. Anyway, he called my wife back in early January and said that all of his contacts in mainland China told him that the communists are lying and it's really bad and to start prepping. And that was early January. Okay, thank you, thank you for the call. Brad West, we got 30 seconds. And you know what? And we saw examples of that here in Metro Vancouver as well. 
my best friend is is Chinese. He heard early on, and you you remember the pictures of uh, largely Asian malls in Richmond and Burnaby. They were empty. Empty. Yeah. They were empty, and uh, many uh, Chinese Canadians were wearing masks early on. And, okay. And, and you know, I think there's a lot to be said for uh, what that did to actually help us lower the numbers here in Metro Vancouver. Thank you for coming on today. Thanks very much for having me, Mike. All right, welcome back. Mike Smith, as we continue talking about the COVID-19 pandemic, it's interesting, south of the border of the United States, we've seen some protest rallies in the last few days from people who were upset with the lockdown provisions and the social distancing and some businesses shut down the United States and people who say they want to get back to work. And if you listen to what some of the people at these rallies are saying, they obviously don't seem to be scared about uh, being close to other people and potentially being infected from the virus. But some of them just think that the whole thing is just a hoax. Anyway, have a listen. Here's a little listen to some of the people at some of these protests. If you can't make the choices for yourself, you no longer live in a free country. And right now we do not live in a free country. We have to wait for permission from the government at many levels to be able to do something. Go out of the house, go shopping, gather in groups of 10 or more. Okay, let's talk about the measures that have been put in the state and in, into place in our country in the United States and why it's important. Let's try and separate some of the fact from fiction here on this pandemic. My guest is Dr. Jason Shepard from the University of Utah School of Medicine, and he wrote a terrific piece on this for medium.com, which I will tweet out for all my followers here. Uh, Dr. Shepard, thanks a lot for coming on. Hi, Mike. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it a lot. When you hear people say that maybe this COVID-19 is not such a big deal because it's it's like the flu, and if you get sick, you're going to be fine, what do you say to people like that? Because lots of misinformation out there. How is COVID-19 different from the flu, for example? Let's start there. Yeah, so if you just look at um, you know the average uh, death rate, numbers of deaths, deaths in various countries but um there's just a lot more death that's going on um than the average flu so for example new york city already has 15,000 deaths in one month and the total u.s death count for flu in a year is 30,000 so clearly this is not the same both in terms of the severity and um the infectivity and because most people, all of us, don't have immuni- uh, an immunity to this new virus. Um, it's especially dangerous to those that are um, that have, you know, complications with their lungs or um, various comorbidities. Okay, there's also a lot of myths out there and uh, a lot of urban legends and myths that are developing around COVID-19, and I thought you did a great job in sort of breaking some of these down. Let's talk about a few of those, Dr. Shepard, that you wrote about in your article, and, and one of the ones that jumps out at me is this uh, belief or claim or, or accusation that this is somehow a man-made virus or that it was it was escaped from a lab in Wuhan, China, uh, Fox News had actually reported last week that the U.S. government is investigating claims that this virus may have escaped from a Chinese lab uh, into the general population. Donald Trump uh, confirmed it appeared that uh, they want to get to the bottom of that. What are your thoughts on that, this uh, allegation that somehow this, this virus escaped from a lab in China? 
Yeah, I mean, I can understand that, uh, you know, people want to, you know, point blame or try and figure out exactly where this virus came from. Uh, and of course, at this point, we, we couldn't we can't say 100 percent sure what exactly happened in China. Um, but from a science perspective, um, there's some some uh, analysis that we can do. For example, we can sequence uh, the the viruses, the genetic material of the viruses that have come over to uh, the states in various countries and then compare them with the, the uh, sequences that were in China, compare them with known uh, uh, viruses that are in other species. And basically all of the sequencing suggests that uh, the closest virus um, is, is, is a bat virus. And there's uh, precedent for viruses jumping hosts from, from one animal to another uh, for example, the the original SARS breakout and and MERS, those are also coronaviruses where it was clearly a jump from uh, a host animal to humans. Yeah. And you know how that exactly happened in the new case with with uh, the COVID epidemic uh, pandemic, um, it's not clear. But uh, th- there is no real data suggest to suggest that um, this this virus was man made. Uh, it, there's clear uh, differences between this virus and the bat virus that that can be explained through natural mutation rates and evolution. Um, and then going to whether this was uh, a lab outbreak, uh, you know, most experts think that this is really unlikely, um, partly because it's not clear. Um, how this this uh, could have been transmitted to to a human in the lab, um, and you know I I think obviously there's there's some interest in trying to figure this out, but from from a science perspective, there's really no good data to suggest that that has happened. Speaking to Dr. Jason Shepard from the University of Utah, and another one, the, the article that you wrote is really kind of flashed around the world and, and has picked up a lot of hits from people who want to separate the sort of the facts from fiction on this thing. And some of the sort of crazier kind of crackpot ones that you kind of debunk in the article. What's this one about Bill Gates and when he announced he wanted to help develop a, a COVID-19 vaccine? Of course, that sort of brought the anti-vaxxers out and saying that somehow Bill Gates was involved in this. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, firstly, I'd like to say that, I mean, it's kind of surprising that this article has taken off so much. And I think this sort of shows that, you know, people are desperate for for real information on this topic. And, of course, you're you're hearing some of the conspiracy theorists and some loud voices. But I think on the most most part, the general public are hungry for for legitimate information, so I think that's a yeah. good thing. Um, you know, the Bill Gates thing. Yeah, I, I don't exactly know why this is a, a big uh, point for um, people, but uh, when he came out and said that he was going to try and facilitate vaccine development, there was this uh, outcry that he was going to profit from this, that he was somehow. Uh, controlling the pandemic or initiated or knew about it even before, um, you know, the, the uh, people in, in America did. And, of course, none of this is really true. I mean, the Gates Foundation has been around for 10, over 10 years. He's dedicated uh, billions of dollars for global public health. This is not something new for the Gates Foundation, 
right. um, and you know, there's real no, there's, uh, there's no credible information that he would actually profit from any of this. The, there's, it's, it's sort of this um, idea that, you know, people want to know that there's control um, underlying this pandemic. That somehow there's a reason why it's happening, and that they can pinpoint this to one person. And um, you know, I think this just stems from a lot of fear and ignorance. Okay, Dr. Shepard, one last one for you, and this is one that I've heard. I get emails about it. I get tweets about it. I had some phone calls in the open line about it, and that is that somehow uh, the pandemic or the COVID-19 virus is somehow connected to 5G cellular networks or 5G cellular (laughs) towers. Uh, You've talked about this one as well. What's the response to that one? Yeah, and I I mean, and again, I I have no idea how how those two are connected or why they even connected those two. Um, there was this idea that uh, uh, the 5G cell towers are, are in themselves uh, dangerous, and that's another sort of um, flashpoint. Uh, and, you know, I, there's no scientific uh, way that a cell phone tower, which emits radio waves, um, can facilitate the spread of the virus. There's, you know, viruses are biological entities that don't interact with radio waves, um, there's really just absolutely no <laughs> um, way that this is something that's happening. Dr. Shepard, thanks for coming on today. I appreciate it. Thank you.